The scripture reading today is Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we're here today by divine design. None of us are here by accident. You have a plan for us. And you have given to us the book of Romans as our new guide. And we pray that you would help us to understand you in this book. We humble ourselves before its content, and we ask for you to illumine us as to what we need to know, what we need to see, and the kind of people you want us to be. So begin today, I pray, the unfolding of the beauty of the gospel in this great and glorious book. Come now, help me to get it right and to make it clear and to lead our people in worship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we begin a exciting two-year journey together as we're going to walk through the book of Romans. This book is unique and powerful. It is a book that I have never preached through before. And that is not by accident. <laughs> it's not, I'm telling you. The, the, this book is sacred ground sacred ground for me and I believe for many of you and I hope that it will become sacred ground for others of you. I love the Bible. I love sections of the Bible with a great intensity and the book of Romans would be one of those sections of the Bible. And yet the content of Romans makes me tremble. It's one of the reasons why I've not preached it before. It would be at the top of my lists of the books that I have great respect and awe for. And part of the reason is that this book, the content within it, has, has changed the world. It's, it's changed the course of people's lives. A few examples. St. Augustine, the most brilliant theologian of the early centuries of the church came to conviction of sin and salvation after reading some verses in the 13th chapter. Martin Luther rediscovered the doctrine of salvation by faith alone in his study of Romans 1.17 and then led the Protestant Reformation of which we are the children of that movement. While listening to the reading of Luther's preface to the book of Romans, John Wesley felt his heart strangely warmed and would point to that moment in terms of his own conversion and became a catalyst for one of the greatest revivals that our country has ever seen. John Bunyan was so inspired by the book of Romans that as he was in the Bedford jail that he penned 
the words to the immortal pilgrim's progress. So this book has power within it. It has had powerful implications in people's lives and in our culture. Romans is sacred ground because, church, within 16 chapters in this book are powerful truths, truths that I believe will change your life at some level. There will be some people who will be converted as we study the book of Romans for the next two years. There will be many of us whose minds will be expanded and our hearts will be enlarged and at times will be confounded and humbled as we behold beautiful things about God in this book. Martin Luther said this about the book of Romans, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. See, Martin Luther believed that this book was important. John Calvin, when encouraging pastors to take the book of Romans with care and to be sure that they make it clear, says this, If we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all of the most profound treasures in the Scriptures. So that's why I tremble with this book. And yet at the same time, while I still don't feel worthy or adequate to walk through this book, it seems like it's time. And so I'm thrilled to be able to be your guide as we walk through this together. Now what do I want to have happen in your life and in our church? What I long for is expositional exaltation. What do I mean by that? I mean that the beauty of the Scriptures, seeing them line by line, verse by verse, as we walk through this book, as you see what Romans says, that's exposition, that it would not be just a mere intellectual exercise, that it would not be that you just would know doctrine or theology, that it would not mean that you just know Romans. Expositional exaltation means that at the end of the day, Romans becomes a platform for you to behold the beauty of God. It is that as you see the beauty of the doctrine of grace in the book of Romans, that you are humbled. At one moment, you want to crawl out of the sanctuary. and another moment, you want to leap for joy. And all of that is what the gospel brings, that you, as you behold Romans, that you really behold God, that you exult in the beauty of what is in this book. That's what I long for. That's what I'm going to work towards and hope to lead you in. So as you prepare for the Lord's Day, as you get ready, as you drive in, maybe you just need to take a moment as you're making preparations for the Lord's Day just to say something like, God, as we're in Romans today, I don't want just to see Romans. I want to see you. Help me to worship you. And that's what I hope happens in our hearts. So we're going to begin our study today, and I want to try and help you understand what the vision of Romans is. And we're going to do that by... First, looking at the theme of Romans. Secondly, the background. It's important to know where this book came from and what are the dynamics that are involved. And then third, how does the book begin? So the theme, the background, and the beginning. That's what we're going to look at today. So first here, what is the theme of the book of Romans? If you were to read through Romans in one setting, which I would highly recommend, it wouldn't be long until you would discover a very prominent and frequently used word. It is the word righteousness. The word is used 41 times in 37 verses, and it is the major theme of the book of Romans. So if you're a note taker and you like to summarize things into a very succinct manner, Romans 
is about righteousness. Now, what do I mean by righteousness? Righteousness, by definition, means to be holy, to be upright, to be moral. The term is used for God and also for those in a right relationship with Him. So what Romans is about is about righteousness, the righteousness of God, the righteousness that comes through the gospel, and the righteousness that then comes to sinful human beings who are unrighteous. So that's the beautiful story. It's about God, about the gospel, and about us, and righteousness is the thing that unites it all together. Now the Greek term for righteousness means to be in a right relationship with someone, and In the context of Romans, it means that God is in a right relationship with His created order because He is holy and His um, creation is that which belongs to Him. So He is righteous. He is Himself righteousness. To be righteous on our part means that we as human beings, although we are not righteous, we are declared to be righteous because of the finished work of Jesus. So what happens is that God, through Jesus, creates in unrighteous people righteousness because of the righteousness of Christ. So any righteousness that I have is only because God gave it to me and because it belongs to Jesus. So I have a gifted righteousness. So the theme of this book, then, is righteousness through the gospel. That's what we're going to talk about over and over and over. Righteousness through the gospel. Say that with me righteousness through the gospel. You cannot forget this theme. Because this theme of righteousness through the gospel becomes sort of the true north as we make our way through the the book of Romans. And when we're talking about the unrighteousness of mankind in Romans 1 and 2, you need to remember that there's going to be hope that's coming when you hear about the beauty of the transformation that comes by receiving Christ in Romans chapter 6. You need to remember that this is part of the story of God's righteousness coming through the gospel. And as well, when we're in chapters like 9 through 11 and you're reading the Bible and going, what in the world? And your mind is being blown. You need to remember, this is about righteousness through the gospel. Look at Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 and 17. These are really the summary two verses. The overarching theme for the entire book is found in these two verses. Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, it, there is the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, for as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, it's all in there. The gospel, faith, righteousness of God from God and for us through faith. So we'll unpack this verse next week more fully, but what I want you to simply see in Romans 1.16 is the connection between the gospel and righteousness. All that to say that Romans is a magnificent presentation of the gospel. The good news that God has provided righteousness, not based upon what we can do for ourselves, but based upon what God has done for us in sending His Son as a sacrifice for sin. So that's the gospel, that's righteousness, that's what Romans is all about. Now the argument of the book, and frequently as Paul writes letters, he uses the same sort of methodology He's going to move from doctrine to practice. Paul's going to tell us things about God and the gospel, and then he's going to help us see how we are to live it out. And so over 
the next two years, with little breaks in between, we'll look at five different sections of the book of Romans. It will be divided like this. Right now, we're in the section on the revealing of righteousness, chapters 1 to 3. We're going to see God's righteousness, and we're also going to see our unrighteousness. And then the gift of righteousness that will come, how God gives righteousness to human beings by faith in Jesus. Then the hope of righteousness, what righteousness brings by faith. The mystery of righteousness in chapters 9 through 11 about how God's sovereign plan for righteousness humbles us. And then finally, the lifestyle of of righteousness and what it means to present our bodies as living sacrifice. Sacrifices, rather. So this book is essentially about God's righteousness, the gospel, and how our righteousness comes through a personal relationship with Jesus. It comes through faith in him. So that's the theme. Righteousness through the gospel. That's the vision, the overarching vision of Romans. So secondly now, let's turn, let's talk a little bit about the background. Whenever you're studying the Bible, it's important to know why a particular book of the Bible was written. Because while God sovereignly inspired the scriptures by the Holy Spirit, there was a reason why people were writing the the content that they did at the time. There was real people and real needs and real issues, and these letters came about because there were particular issues that were attempting to be addressed. And so when you think about the background, it's helpful to know things like the author, um, audience, the occasion, those sorts of things. So let's see if we can unpack a few of those. Who wrote the book of Romans? Well, chapter 1, verse 1 begins, the first word is Paul. And very few scholars debate whether or not Paul wrote the book of Romans. It's fairly straightforward. He wrote it. If you look at the end of Romans, like chapter 16 and verse 22, you'll see that it was written by the hand of somebody else named Tertius. And he was a secretary or um, somebody who simply served as the, um, the scribe, if you will, or the amanuensis, that's sort of the fancy theological term for it, in terms of him taking what Paul was saying and writing it down. So the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans. Now, if you're new to Christianity or you're trying to figure out the claims of Christ, you may not be familiar with who Paul was. Let me just give you a very, very brief summary as to who he was. So Paul arguably is the second most influential person in the um, story of New Testament Christianity, the first person being Jesus Christ himself. But the Apostle Paul, secondly, is incredibly influential. He was a highly trained Jewish scholar who was very zealous for the Jewish faith. And when Christianity came on the scenes, he saw it as a threat to the Jewish faith and tradition. And so he, as a dedicated Jew, began persecuting this thing called the way or the way of Jesus. And so he went and had orders from the religious leaders to persecute anyone who named the name of Christ. And Paul was very effective in this persecution. Or at the time, his name was Saul. Acts chapter 9 tells us that as he's making his way to the city of Damascus to execute an order from the high priest in terms of this persecution path that he had, Jesus appears to him in a vision, and Paul is confronted with the reality that he is persecuting Jesus Christ, and then Paul was gloriously converted. And so the story of the apostle Paul is that he once was the persecutor of the church, I mean the persecutor of the church, and then he becomes the most famous convert of the church. And you can imagine sort of the tension that would have existed within the believer's hearts of our, you tell me this this guy is for real, how do we know? And And what Paul did then is God empowered him to use all of the skills of his upbringing that now could be leveraged to 
to spread the message of Christianity. And he took upon himself the ministry of of reaching Gentiles for Christ, non-Jewish people. He planted many, many churches. He also, for the name of Jesus, faced all kinds of of persecution, embarked on three missionary journeys all throughout modern-day Turkey and Greece, and had an enormous influence, substantial influence, on the New Testament, the Bible that you have in your hands, but also the course of Christianity. The way that Paul conducted himself in ministry was that he would go to a city, to a synagogue, or to a marketplace and begin to present an argument as to who Jesus was and why he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And so what Paul does in his letters is he argues, he presents a case, he presents an argument as to why Jesus should be believed or why the gospel is what it is. He loves the gospel and that comes through in his letters. And so we're going to see the argument that he makes for the gospel for the people of Rome. So that's who wrote it. Who was it written to? Verse 7 says, to all those who are in Rome. It's not addressed to one church. Sometimes the letter says to the church that's in Rome. This is to all those who are in Rome. And the reason likely that Paul says it this way is because there's not one established church, but rather a series of house churches that had been planted and and gathered in the city of Rome. We don't know how those churches were, were established. Some suggest that perhaps there were Jews that heard the gospel uh, at Pentecost in Jerusalem and then returned to Rome. I'm sure there were some, but we don't know if that's how the church started. Or if just as people came to faith in Christ, that, that they brought the message of the gospel back and therefore these house churches were formed. What we do know, though, is that the church at Rome was not planted directly by the Apostle Paul. And that becomes very, very important as you develop a lens to look at the book of Romans. Paul didn't plant the church. In fact, he had never been to Rome for the purpose of preaching the gospel to them. They had no relationship with him. Unlike other churches who knew Rome, or knew Paul, rather, and had great affection for him or had an ongoing relationship with him, the church at Rome knew nothing of Paul beyond what they had heard through others. So there's no personal connection. Now, why did Paul write the book of Romans? This requires a little bit of piecing together some um, bits of information or some data points. We know from a Roman historian that in 49 AD, the emperor Claudius expelled a number of Jews who were followers of Jesus. We can gather from that that there was some sort of controversy that happened in the city of Rome as Jews who followed Jesus uh, and those who didn't follow Jesus had conflict. And you can imagine, if the gospel is sweeping through the Roman Empire, if it's coming to synagogues and people are claiming that Jesus is the Christ, he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, that he's fulfilled the law, that that is going to create some potential tensions. And so apparently it got so bad that Claudius, for whatever reason, decided that these Jews needed to be expelled from the city of Rome. The Bible also gives us evidence of this. Take your Bible, go to Acts chapter 18 and verse 2. We, We catch wind of this as it relates to the lives of two people, that being Aquila and Priscilla. Chapter 18 and verse 2 says that, verse 1 says, after Paul left Athens and went, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Verse 2, And he found a Jew named Aquila, 
a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. And notice what it says next. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. I, I suspect that that doesn't mean all Jews, like everyone who is of Jewish origin, but it means all believing Jews, given what the Roman historian said in 49 AD, that it was linked uh, to a problem as it relates to Christ. Now, how does that relate to the book of Romans? Well, we can infer from this that Christianity began not only to sweep through these synagogues, but also began to create some sort of conflict. And when these Jews were removed from the city of Rome, that left these house churches comprised mostly of Gentiles. And that as Paul writes the book of Romans, likely around 54 or 58 AD, some of those Jews may have trickled back into the city But there is this ongoing question as to Greeks and Jews under the banner of Jesus and how are they to interact with one another. There were enormous questions as it relates to things like how does one look at the law? How does one relate to issues like circumcision? Is there equality between Jew and Gentile? Or does a Gentile still be, have to come, have to become a Jew like it was previous to Jesus' message and ministry? And then how does one become a part of God's community of faith? These are enormously significant issues. They're not only theological issues, they're cultural issues. They relate to family and backgrounds and ethnicity. This is a very significant potential problem. And if this is right, this problem between Jews and Gentiles, then it would explain a number of things about the book of Romans. Not the least of which is what Paul says in Romans 1.16. You've probably heard this verse many, many times, but if you hear it through this lens, you hear it a little differently. When he says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. So if there is an ethnic problem going on within the church, then that verse takes on new meaning. It also explains why Paul would spend so much time talking about the law in the book of Romans, why he would address the issue of the place of Israel, why he would deal with matters related to personal freedoms regarding what foods you could eat. You see, the church at Rome was probably dealing with significant cultural challenges between different kinds of people all under the banner of the gospel, and they're trying to figure out how do we love Jesus, love the gospel, and still do life together? It's a great question. There's another reason why Paul writes Romans. He likely wrote from the city of Corinth and put the book in the hands of Phoebe, who brought it to these house churches, Likely, his writing happens at the end of his third missionary journey. And he is anticipating that he's going to bring an offering to Jerusalem, an offering that he had taken. There were some Jerusalem saints that were in dire need. And so from these Gentile congregations, he took an offering and then was going to bring it to the people of Jerusalem. And then after that Jerusalem visit, which he didn't know how it was going to turn out, Paul's hope was that he could go to a region of the world that he had never preached the gospel in, that he had not been to yet, and that is the section of the Roman Empire called Spain. On Paul's heart was a future ministry in Spain. Romans chapter 15 shows us this very clearly. Here's what it says. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, that's the regions that Paul had just been, And since I have longed for many years to come to see you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. 
once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So Paul has his sights set on reaching Spain, and he's hoping that the church at Rome would be to Spain what Antioch was to his first, second, and third missionary journeys. Ascending place, a place of, of connection, a, a place from which Paul could launch. So if we put all this together then, let's, let's think of what we've got here. We have a congregation in Rome made up of churches, house churches, who have a Gentile Jewish issue, and they're trying to figure out how to get along together, and there are problems. We have a church that Paul knows about, but they don't know him that well. He's never shown up on site. They have no personal relationship with him, no connection to him. He doesn't have any relational capital to leverage as he writes to them. And third, he looks beyond Rome and he wants to reach Spain. He wants to preach the gospel to people who have never heard it before. So the question is, what do you say to a group of people who you really don't know that well, who aren't getting along, and who you want to mobilize in order to reach people who haven't heard the gospel? And what Paul gives them is the most systematic treatment that we have in the Bible about the gospel. Listen to me. What do people need in order to get along? They need the gospel. What do they need in order to have a heart to reach people who have never heard? What do they need to hear? They need to hear the gospel. And what Paul does is he gives the most systematic and and in-depth treatment of the gospel that we have in the entire Bible, not because it's a theological treatise on the gospel alone. It's a theological treatise meant to help people get along, love each other, even though they're radically different, and mobilize them to have a heart for people who have never heard the gospel. So Paul gives them the gospel for those reasons. This book, friends, is not just about theology. If all you learn is more about Romans and more about theology, that would be a failure on my part and your part. The goal is not just for you to understand the content of the Scripture. If you understand what Romans says, listen to me, you will love people more deeply, you will forgive them more easily, you'll get along with people who are different than you, you'll look over differences, you'll find that relationships around you are mended because you understand it and you're applying the gospel. But it also means that you're going to apply the gospel such that you'll see your neighborhood different, you'll see our city different, and you'll see regions around the world differently because you love the gospel and you just want those people to hear and receive the beautiful message that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. So this is the power of the gospel. It has the ability to transform homes and lives and people. And listen, friends, we cannot forget this as we study the book of Romans we're getting down deep in the weeds, we we have to remember that this book is not just about doctrine. This book is about how to preach the gospel, how to understand the gospel so that we can get along together as a church, that husbands and wives can love one another, that children, brothers and sisters can get along together, that, that, that people can have robust, vibrant relationships. And if you think about it, this is when church really works, doesn't it? When the gospel is front and center and people are getting along, that's the beautiful thing of what the gospel can do. This is when church is as glorious as it could possibly be. Church makes sense and is beautiful when it's concerned about others and how to be able to bring the gospel to them. And So how do you motivate people to get along together? And how do you motivate people to love each other? And how do you motivate them to have a heart for people who've never heard the answer? Is you preach the gospel to them. And that's what Paul does for us in this glorious book. The vision is to see individuals and house churches and cities and the entire world transformed under the banner 
of a righteousness that comes from God through the gospel. So I have to tell you, the book of Romans, the book of Romans can change the world. And it has. And that's what I'm hoping happens in a small way in your life, in my life, and even in our church, that we will be changed because of what we see as we think and talk and lean into the depth of the gospel. Is that how you see the gospel? You see, for many years I didn't, even as a pastor. I I thought that the gospel was the elementary message of the Bible and that as you grew, you sort of grew up out of the gospel. It's sort of like the training wheels of the Christian life. But the reality is, is the gospel is not the training wheels. The gospel is everything. The, the gospel is the, the essence of all of what we believe and love. C.J. Mahaney, in his book, The Cross-Centered Life, says this, The gospel isn't one class among many that you'll attend during your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building that all the classes take place in. Rightly approached, all the topics you'll study and focus on as a believer will be offered to you within the walls of the glorious gospel. So there's a book, I know you've, many of you have seen this, it's called The Gospel Primer. And uh, what this book has done in terms of helping me is to preach the gospel to my own self and my own heart. And so I want to encourage you to think about how you can preach the gospel to your heart as we talk about the book of Romans. In fact, one of the things that we're doing for our family devotions for this first quarter is we're, we're, we're taking a, a section in this book as we gather for family meals and just reading it to one another and then reading the verses that are there. And so I don't know if family devotions work really well for you. They work sometimes for us, right? And so it's important for me to have some sort of plan as to what we're going to do and try. And so this is what we're trying. Just so we can just talk about the gospel more often. And so last week we read this and then read the passages. The gospel is so foolish according to my natural wisdom, so scandalous according to my conscience. And so incredible, according to my timid heart, that it is a daily battle to believe the full scope of it as I should. There is simply no other way to compete with the forebodings of my conscience, the condemnings of my heart, and the lies of the world and the devil than to overwhelm such things with the daily rehearsing of the gospel. So my hope and prayer for you individually and for us as a congregation is that we'll become really good at rehearsing the gospel because we need to know who we are and we need to see our world through the lens of the message of the book of Romans, that righteousness comes through the gospel, that it is the power of God. So that's the background. Finally, so how does the book begin? Romans chapter 1 is interesting because it's Paul's introduction of himself to the church, a church that doesn't really know him. And so what he says in these opening verses is really important. And what what he shows them and shows us is what he sees in himself about his own identity. We also see what he thinks about his message and also his mission. Let me show you these Three things in these opening verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That's verse 1, and here we see his identity. We see that he sees himself as a servant. He says he's a slave, a servant of Christ. That word in the Greek means doulos. It means that you're low on the totem pole, that any authority that you have is derivative of someone else. And so Paul sees himself through this lens. 
And this lens of seeing yourself as a servant happens because of the gospel. You understand that everything that you have, you have because you've received it. So the gospel humbles you and making you realize that you didn't bring anything to the table. God saved you despite yourself, and everything you have is something that God has given to you as a gift. And therefore, the lens through which you see yourself for the rest of the life of your life, if you apply the gospel to your life, is that you see yourself as subservient to God. And you realize that pride is trying to usurp God's authority and the gospel reminds us that we need to be under God's authority. So Paul sees himself as a servant. He's called to be an apostle. He was miraculously called. Acts chapter 9 tells us about that calling and he uses an important Greek word, kletos. It'll appear in other parts in Romans for how God calls people into ministry, but also how he calls them even to salvation. It's a word that Paul uses often for God's invasion into his life and invasion into our lives. That moment when you received Christ, when you saw and you understood the gospel, when suddenly the light bulb came on, that God invaded your life, and he uses that Greek term to describe that. That's a calling where... A few weeks ago I described it, that God calls your name out of the tomb of your own self-sufficiency and you awaken, you hear Him, and seeing you believe. That's the calling. It's a big theme in Romans. And then He's set apart for the gospel. God had a very special place for Him. Romans 1.15 tells us that Paul says that he was separated from birth. So Paul knew that God had a plan for his life. His life was given to spread the gospel. And this introduction is important because it shows us Paul's view of himself. After all, the Bible tells us in other places, like Philippians, that he was a man of stellar education, a man with all sorts of um, intellectual ability, had all sorts of prestige. And so Paul has a, a, a long pedigree, things that he could be really, really proud of. And on the other side, he also has things that he should be awfully ashamed of. Things that he would be embarrassed about. Things that people knew about, but things that he's not proud of. And so what we see is the identity of Paul eclipses both his pedigree and also his past. And that's really helpful. Because there are some of you in this room, I I know, you have a pedigree. You are uber smart. You scored like a 21 on your ACT. I mean, you... The scale goes way higher than that. Just so you know, I was trying to encourage some of you. You're like, I'm smart. Really? Is that, is that a high? Is that high? So you scored super high on your test scores. You're involved in, in, in all sorts of, of great pursuits. You make lots of money. And from a world standpoint, you are super successful. But from God's perspective, that doesn't matter at all. Your pedigree doesn't matter one bit to God. The gospel tells us that whether someone comes from a high degree or a low degree, someone from all walks of life, we're all sinners, we all need a Savior, and at the end of the day, all of us suffer from one devastating ailment. It is the presence of sin in our lives. So there's pedigree. The gospel humbles you when you think you've got a great pedigree, but there's also, I know, a boatload of people that you've got to pass that you are just like, oh, what was I thinking? How in the world did that happen? And, oh, I don't even want people, I don't even want to open that area of my life. And you know what? The gospel also eclipses your past. It helps you to remember that your identity isn't rooted in all of your successes. And listen to me, your identity is also not rooted in your failures. That your identity is rooted in the essence of the gospel. And this is where you need to become 
well acquainted with what, with what it means to preach the gospel to your soul. When, when a thought comes back to you as to what your past was like and the enemy throws thoughts at you and, and says, how can you claim to be a Christian? You know what you did? What if people knew about that? You have to, how do you conquer that? You conquer that with the gospel. You say in effect to the devil and to your past, my past is real, but my Savior has conquered that. I don't deny my past, but the fact of the matter is that past doesn't hold me because my Savior has dealt with my past. This is Paul's identity. Secondly, he has a message. It says the gospel, this good news, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now think, why would Paul talk about Old Testament prophets? Well, because he, he's going to link this to Jews. So he's got to bring them into the equation, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And then verse 3, concerning his son. So the gospel centers in Jesus. So if you're new to College Park, you've you got to realize that we're not just about the gospel. We actually could boil it even now. We're, we're essentially about Jesus. That's what we're about because he was the one who brought the gospel, delivered the gospel. He's the one who's changed our lives. It's not just that we believe in the theology. It's we believe in a person. So it's about his son who descended from David according to the flesh. Notice that Paul balances here both the humanity of Christ and then verse 4, and was declared to be the son of God. So he's got humanity of Jesus and also the divinity of Jesus. And then he says he's declared to be the Son of God in power. That's a very important word in the book of Romans because the gospel is not just an idea. It is a powerful concept that changes people's lives. It is the power of God to salvation. So the gospel is powerful. He says, in power, according to the spirit of holiness. So the spirit is the agent by which Christ was raised from the dead. And this is really important because throughout the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit is very prominently featured as we see what it means to follow in obedience with Christ and that the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same spirit that dwells in you if you're a follower of him. And then he says, by the resurrection of the dead, since sin and death are linked, then the defeat of death would mean the defeat of sin. And this is what Jesus did. And this is why the resurrection is so meaningful and so significant. The resurrection declared that Jesus was right and that those who put their trust in him could know that their sins would be forgiven. And this is also why in Romans chapter 6, when Paul talks about, so how do you live practically? It means you understand that when Christ died, you died. When he rose, you rose. So you're to walk in newness of life, just as he's walking in newness in life. So everything about my life then, as a follower of Jesus, is wrapped up in the gospel. It's conditioned on Jesus' work, and it's empowered by the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And when you understand understand yourself and life and ministry through this lens i'm telling you it changes everything and that's why paul presented the gospel to them because he knew if they got this they'd get along they'd love one another and they'd also be ramped up to try and reach people who had never heard the gospel so that's the message finally the mission so his identity is in the gospel, the message is the gospel, and his mission is to bring the gospel. Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. So Paul says, we, I have received grace and apostleship. 
In order to do what? In order to bring about the obedience of faith. So what Paul is leaning into is not just belief. When you hear the gospel, it is something that you believe. But it is something that when you believe, it works. It transforms. It changes. And so Paul's aim is when he thinks of Spain and his desire to reach them, he wants to preach the gospel to them, not only so that they would believe, but so that believing they might have life, as John says in his gospel, might have life through his name. And that life is not just eternal life. That is life like right now. It means that you're able to obey in a way that you weren't able to obey before, that you are now free in Christ and able to say no the things that you could never say no before because you've said yes to Jesus. This is the power of what the gospel does. To bring about the obedience of faith, verse 5, for the sake of his name among all the nations. You see? From the very beginning, Paul has a global view in the purpose for writing the book of Romans. He wants to take the gospel and he wants to see obedience for the glory of God take place in every region that is not named the name of Jesus. His longing, his passion for the gospel created a longing for more and more people to be welcomed into God's kingdom. Listen to me. This is what will happen if you begin rehearsing the gospel. If you have a low-level motivation to share the gospel, here's what you need. You don't need guilt. You don't need someone to get in your grill and say to you, shame on you for not sharing the gospel. That never works. Instead, you know what does work? What works is to rehearse the gospel, to behold the beauty of it, to be so saturated with it that when you're hanging out with a lost person and suddenly some kind of conversation comes up, you can't help yourself because you're so thrilled of what has happened in the context of your soul. The problem with our evangelism is not that we know, not that we don't know that people are lost, and it's not that there isn't a desire to share Christ with them. It is that our passion for the gospel is eclipsed by other passions. Thereby rehearsing the gospel, there is a greater need. I don't care what they think because my love for the gospel eclipses all these other things. So rehearse the gospel, preach the gospel, tell yourself the gospel, realize what the gospel means, live it out, see how it works in your family. And I'm telling you, you will not be able to contain your passion for the gospel. And people will begin to to see you as, man, you love this gospel. Yes, I do, because it's changed my life. That's the aim, that's the goal. For the nations, when you understand this gospel, church, it changes something inside of you in terms of how you see yourself. It changes how you, it'll change what you see when you drive into your neighborhood, go to your apartment, or walk in your dorm room. It changes what you see in the city. It changes what you see in the country. It changes what you see in the world. The gospel compels us to reach the Cloud Mountain people. The gospel compels us to reach people who've never heard. The gospel also compels us. On Thursday, we had about 75 people praying in Fisher, saying, God, what do we need to do to try and reach people in this community? As our elders met this weekend to think, what is our vision to be able to reach the city of Indianapolis? And and how can we reach people who are not presently reaching, whether they live in, in the far reaches of the world so far away from us, or whether they live right next door? And the answer, the link between them and our hearts is to rehearse and to remind ourselves of the beauty of this gospel. So listen to me. This letter was not just written to the church at Rome because they had needs getting along. We have needs to learn how to get along. Your home has needs to learn how to get along. 
You got kids who don't get along. You got a marriage that's not getting along. You got friends that you're not getting along. You got a small group you're not getting along. You got a Sunday school class not getting along. You got to preach. The, you got to remind yourselves about the gospel. We got to get along. We come from different walks of life. We come from different backgrounds. We all are sinners. And we need the gospel to remind us what really unites us and who we really are. And as well, we need the gospel to remind us that we're not here in the world just to pursue the American dream and have a comfortable life and have our kids have a good education and have a really great job so they can support us when we get old. That's not why we're here on earth. Although that sounds really good, doesn't it? Um, the, the fact of the matter is we are here because we need to disseminate the beautiful message that transforms the world, which is the gospel. And how do you do that? You rehearse it. You rehearse it. So College Park, we need to read Romans, not like it's written to the church at Rome, but as if it is, because it is written to us, as though Paul were to say to those who are at College Park Church, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, we need this book. We need this book because we need to be reminded again about the power of the gospel, of what happens when righteousness through the gospel comes to a person's life, when it comes to a home, when it comes to the city, when it comes to the world. We need Romans because we need to be reminded of the power of righteousness through the gospel. Father, we pray as we now receive the elements of the Lord's table that you would remind us even now, about the gospel. Pray that you would use these emblems to push into us truths that we know and believe, but we need to rehearse. So help us, even now, to rehearse the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.